Goodman. And I'm Sarah Merle. And uh, so Sarah, what are you eating and what's eating you? Okay, for once, this is the same, this is the same thing, which is <sighs> I got duped not only by bad Chinese takeout last night, but bad expensive Chinese takeout that ended with me ordering for delivery because I was like, it's treat yourself Sunday. It's been a long week. Let's have somebody else like make and drop off dinner. And like an hour after I ordered it, they called me and they were like, hey, we have your food ready. And I was like, great, bring it on over. And they're like, oh, yeah, we don't have any drivers tonight. And I was like, cool. Um, someone could have like called and told me that like right when I placed the order. That was $76 before my $10 tip. So, Oof. yeah, come on. Right. Like, come on. Anyway, small for hashtag first world problems. What's. What are you eating and what's eating you, Matt <laughs> Oh, I, I want to say that I am very lucky that I found one good Chinese restaurant uh, where I'm at right now. One, It's uh, run by a very lovely uh, Chinese woman who now knows exactly what I like to eat. So awesome. <laughs> she knows awesome. I'm always going to get their uh, handmade dumplings. So they just start the moment they see me walk through the door. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> As, um, as I often say, it is always better to become a regular of the same place uh, than to uh, try to hop to all the cool new places. It's much better for your community to uh, just just support the couple neighborhood joints. Exactly. And the ones that are like legitimately excellent, like yeah. legitimately do everything they need to to uh, make the experience excellent and not don't just microwave <laughs> frozen yeah. food. Yeah, no Chef Mike back there. Yeah. Oh, good reference, Chef Mike. <laughs> nice. Um, so uh, today I've been stuffing enchiladas made by a, <laughs> uh, by a, a local, uh, I think it's a, a grocery store. Love it. Um, well, obviously family run a grocery store for um, the Puerto Rican community here. And they're goddamn great. And what's eating <laughs> me <laughs> and what's eating me is just, you know, um, waiting for the doom of the upcoming Supreme court session. We haven't gotten yeah. like the absolute hammer dropped on us yet, uh, but it's coming. So I've just been in like, butt clench o'clock 24 <laughs> seven. Damn. <clears throat> Damn. Well, uh, you know, you are the canary in my proverbial panic coal mine. Um, and so I, you know, Ready for all systems to be go on this one, so it's it's gonna make for some uh, it's gonna make for some <laughs> little darker pods, but I guess today we'll lighten things up by talking about Hannah Arendt. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say like uh, real quick when we're talking about the doom and gloom of getting people elected, like when I you know. Everybody talks about the banality of evil vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, Nazis coming up with like sewage systems for concentration camps. Uh, it can also be things like uh, Citizens United that no one cares about because it has a boring name and it sounds boring. And here we are, you know, 10, 15 years after its hellscape with like a lot of um, marginalized people being uh, further marginalized, to put it very, very mildly, um, when it's like it really started with shit like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's useful. It's such a useful way to think of it that 
like the sort of evil we see in the world is probably going to look a lot less like super villains. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's going to be less of the Joker um, than it's going to be like, you know, Samuel Alito. Yeah. A lot so, of uh, the, the phrase that keeps coming to mind during these times is bloodless genocides. And it just feels like, it just feels like we're on our way to a lot of bloodless genocides. We're like, you know, it'll be like the trans kid in Texas who attempted suicide like after the ruling and uh, because his family was going to be investigated. It's going to be shit like that where it's like, well, we didn't really we didn't hold a gun to anybody's head. It's like, okay, sure, sure. Yeah, and this sort of attenuation of causation is part of the game. But I, I want to speak specifically about, I think, a lesser examined aspect of Arendt's work that I think is really important because it sort of provides the, I guess it provides the environment or the soil in which we see totalitarianism uh, arise. And that's the concept of loneliness. Uh, real, so, quick, uh, real quick for yeah. all of just the, you know, the, the me's of the world, the pedestrian listeners without our advanced degrees. Will you give us a, a brief summary of who Hannah Arendt is and uh, why why uh, her voice is so prominent in what we're talking about today? Oh, super useful. So Hannah Arendt's a 20th century philosopher um, who wrote, who emerged post-World War II. That I'm speaking specifically about her work in Origins of Totalitarianism, which mm-hmm. came out, which she was writing about 10 years after she'd been in the United States post-World War, um, post-World War II. And she wrote a lot in the wake of the Nuremberg trials mm-hmm. and then also about the rise of the Soviet Union. So she's often seen as sort of, I guess, the preeminent um, 20th century scholar in thinking about totalitarianism totalitarianism uh, and how horrible how ordinary people can do truly monstrous things cool perfect thank you yeah and she is she's someone she's like w.e.b. Du Bois um, I'm always coming back to her because she saw things so clearly and it's sort of terrifying how things she wrote you yeah. know um, 80 years ago now sometimes 75 yeah. years ago seem like they could have been written yesterday. Yep. So the topic today is about uh, capitalism and loneliness. And uh, (laughs) so uh, can you tell us about like what you're writing about? And like, man, when I asked you what you wanted to do a podcast on today, this jumped right out of your mouth. And I was like, "Uh, yeah, sure. Wow. Okay. High minded. (laughs) We're going, we're going, we're going big dollars for this one. I think the key distinction here is is um, separating the ideas of solitude and loneliness from each other. Yeah. That like, I, I guess this also comes out of my personal experience. You know, I moved here for work to a place where I don't know anyone really yeah. and wound up separated from the institution that I came here to work for. So <laughs> I'm very much operating in, in an environment that could be seen as lonely since I right. don't have like a set friend group or, or, or even, and I work remotely and from home, but I'm not lonely. I am rather enjoying my solitude here um, because it's, I'm going to be moving to DC soon and then shit's going to get real and I'm going to not have time to think. Um, but solitude, <laughs> solitude is not a bad thing. In fact, RN sort of separates it because this is, 
a, a place where you can still think and you can right. still do and you can still interact with other minds. Like I am not lonely because I get to spend this wonderful time with you. Right. Uh, and I had a phone call this morning with um, a professor I really enjoy. He and I are good friends. And we got to talk about things of mutual interest and uh, plan seeing each other in the fall. So not lonely at all. In fact, even though I am physically alone, I am in constant communication with not only myself, but with others. And on the flip side, when I think back through what I consider the loneliest times in my life, it was when I was the most known by people, the most like, you know, recognizable as just like a face, you know, in the community. Those were, that can be also, I mean, not to sound like the, actually being a celebrity is like, really, I was not a celebrity. I'm just saying like, you know, this idea of, I think a lot of people pursue um, sort of social clout and then get a lot of social clout and find that it is very, very far removed from the concept of community that they might've been seeking, you know? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good way to put it because you don't have like a choice in a lot right. of those situations of who you're spending time with, what minds you're interacting with. Yeah. And so when you're alone, when you're lonely, right, what it does is that it it doesn't mean that you're not physically or, you know, spatially interacting with other people. Right. It simply means that you can't act in concert with them that you are not living in the same sort of space as them, whether or not that's psychic um, or a shared reality of some sort. So because that shared reality is necessary to work together. Right. Well, you can, while solitude, you're still living in a shared reality with other people. You're able to work with them. Like we are literally able to collaborate on making this podcast. Right. Yep. <laughs> um, but the, the the sort of like perniciousness of loneliness is that it renders us impotent in a positive sense so that like the only thing that we have in common with our quote unquote like bedfellows or the other lonely people is like our sense of rage and alienation. <laughs> can I just say <clears throat> all I can think about for the last whatever since the um, Patriot was it Patriot Front? Is that who um, got the the fucking terrorist that got busted outside of the Coeur d'Alene uh, Pride? <laughs> Probably. I can't keep track of them anymore. Yeah, yes. they all have the same stupid fucking names. Anyway, what I was laughing about and and like, listen, cops are still shitty. Like, like cops can still be shitty in this scenario, even if like, I want to also say like, <clears throat> um, already seeing the uh, crystallization of like it was an FBI plot. Uh, coming together online is funny for two reasons. Number one being that the person who turned them in was a person looking out their hotel room window and saw a bunch of dudes in khakis with face coverings loading into a van. And they were like, uh, don't like that. And called the cops. Number two, <laughs> these dudes have no concept of the difference between a government informant and an FBI agent. Like for them, that's like, and the, the, the distinction doesn't even matter. But what I think is so funny about this relative to your point about loneliness is like when the only thing you do have in common is that rage and, and the thing that you are pursuing is rage for a kind of racial comfort. All it takes is the slightest application of pressure by a federal agent for you to be like, 
listen, do you have a pen and paper? Because I will tell you everything. I will write it all down. I will tell you everything and everyone that you need to know. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a really good point. And so the term that Arendt uses for this, um, she calls it like, she calls people who are organized in this way, the masses, mm. as opposed to like a class or an interest. It's, she calls this, they're, they're put together because they have nothing in common except their hatred for the present order. And she calls this, quote, negative solidarity, yep. end quote, in which you're not actually working toward a positive goal together but in fact, simply trying to destroy something else, which is why when pressured, you're just like, well, I don't give a shit about these other people. They don't mean <laughs> anything to me. Um, so you're, you're perfectly happy to turn on them. And you, and like, so Obi-Wan can know, like, so Obi-Wan on Disney plus. <laughs> and if you, I don't know if you've watched or not, or how much you know about. I have, I have not watched. Okay. And I know very little about the star Wars universe. So they're like these group of inquisitors who are uh, Sith or like dark side using force uh, force wielders yep. um, who are hunting the remaining Jedi. And they all are fighting with each other constantly, undermining each other's plans, right? They have negative solidarity. Yes. They are, quote unquote, theoretically working together to kill the Jedi. But beyond that, they hate each other. That would be so also that's why well, they're... I was going to say well illustrated by uh, Silicon Valley culture you know <laughs> a lot of aspects of, of culture <laughs> yeah <laughs> and this is and, and, and this i think is useful in thinking of the difference between the ways in which we organize ourselves and yeah. why you can be in a mass of people and feel entirely alone yeah while you can feel supremely validated heard understood even if you're not physically with someone else, but like getting a handwritten like postcard from a friend. Yeah. Also, um, I, I'm sorry about, again, about the aggressive chirping. Oh, no, uh, it's fine. I'm in a room where um, I'm back in my garage because I feel very comfortable and mentally stimulated here, which seems to yield better content. But in the exchange, uh, there is a nest of uh, finches that have made um, a little home right above my door. And two of the four, I, I get my ladder out every day and monitor the situation, of course. Two of the four have already flown the nest, but there are two more taking their, their fifth year up there, I think. And uh, uh, the, the chirping grows louder as if the parents are saying, all right, all right, all right, fly away, fly away. It's great. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. No, I like that. Um, I, I like the idea that they're like staying on their parents' health insurance as long yeah. as possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're on. They're still on the family plan for their cell phone. <laughs> That's right. And it's in bird time, so they were all in the nest yesterday, and two flew out today. So it's like you know, I would assume that they're going to start charging rent by tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess the thing I want to connect this to in a larger sense is that, like, conditions for loneliness don't emerge sort of like contextless. That is always in the context. Of things like unemployment, home loss, um, desperation, and- pressure, or desperation of some kind, right? Like some sort of uh, stressor. Exactly, and then the elite um, who see an advantage in sort of harnessing right this rage and hatred. Yeah. Often you have sort of this formless um, anger, and then it really relies on the elite to direct it. against an enemy deciding what the um, negative solidarity is going to be in solidarity against. 
which is why we run into problems sometimes, uh, I think, especially in the progressive camp, because progressives are entirely about what we're for. We want universal health care. You know, we yeah. want uh, clean air. We want better wages, higher wages. Um, but we're dealing with a movement that has no positive demands. Yeah. So offering things to them like, hey, you get this better wage. Hey, you get this, you know, it doesn't actually address the sort of psychological phenomenon um, behind um, the political energy. Sure. And I think it's just, I mean, Arendt says that this is totalitarianism in its whole. This isn't some smaller form of it. Right. Um, and she says, quote, the masses escape from reality is a verdict against the world in which they're forced to live. End hmm. quote. <laughs> A little um, bit of a, a nod to the hikikomori in, uh, in that statement, you know? Yeah, or people who would rather plunge themselves into the into QAnon or sure. into um, the Fox oh. News extended universe. The the QAnon is especially um, is especially heartbreaking. You know, I've as I mentioned on my other pod on our other podcast, I'm fascinated by QAnon and I remain fascinated by it, but. What you hear so often over and over again from that particular group is, you know, you guys are my family. My kids don't talk to me anymore. Like, and, and it is a statement. That's a statement of solidarity. That's a statement of how deep your belief is. Yeah. But like QAnon doesn't have, I'm thinking like, I don't feel like QAnon has any positive demands. Yeah. I think that QAnon is about destroying whatever the imagined uh, deep state is, whatever the imagined new world order is, right? Yeah. But if you asked all of the people who are involved what world they would want to see emerge on the other side, I, I think you would have very little agreement. Yes. I think ultimately the agreement is being right <clears throat> for QAnon, which is really <laughs> fascinating. It's like I have made jokes over the last two years about it being like COVID being kind of a plague of the stupid, but uh QAnon is is like um a club built around a group identity of kind of never having been right about anything so they're like almost digging into the extremeness and the wrongness of everything that they believe you know what i mean well it's also a form of like extreme skepticism but also yeah. like gullibility at the same time at the that, same like, time yeah, they're like, well, I, I, I don't, I'm skeptical about everything over here, but at the same time, I'm willing to swallow all this insane stuff. Um, what's so, what, and, can I just say? Yeah. What's especially frustrating about this is like the idea that certain powerful people would choose positions of power so that they become unquestionable morally is like not an insane or wrong thing to think, right? Like this is a, is a repeatable pattern that like, that is sometimes how, uh, um, you know, oh my God, predators. That's like some, like how some predators operate, like Jimmy Savile being like one of the great examples of like somebody seeking power so that they can become a more prolific predator. But it's like, y'all then go right to like, Bill and Hillary Clinton are farming kid blood. And it's like, no, come on. You actually, you like, you kind of had something with the first one. And then now you're doing kid blood farms. Come on. Yeah. I always say that like, they're actually not wrong in identifying a lot of the issues. Yes. It's, it kills me. It like, 
institutional distrust of like, you know, people putting out sanitized narratives is like something that we, you know, have a lot of evidence for. Like it happened in, in a lot of national crises, but it's like, then, then y'all just like whip a hard hairpin turn off of the highway of logic. And it's, I, you know, down the old gravel road to insanity. And this is why, so like the aren't quotes that, that stand out to me, like this is one that just, when I was rereading um, Origins of Totalitarianism, it just like, I had to put the book down for a second because it felt like she was whispering directly in our ear, like through some <laughs> yeah. time machine. She wrote, quote, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction and the distinction between true and false no longer exists. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. Right. And that it's just a gut punch, right? Oh, because we are, you know, when I was screaming, and I mean screaming at the top of my lungs in 2016 about like how we cannot, <clears throat> we cannot fathom the dissolution and damage done by abandoning a shared reality, right? Like that was one of the first things that Donald Trump did was like, no, actually, I don't have to conform to your reality. I make my own reality and my people conform to my reality. And I really had kind of like a mental breakdown about that. Um, and I think I feel in a bad way. Um, I feel like I was kind of looking into the present. Hmm. You know what I mean? Anyway. Yeah. I, yeah. I, and that, and it's not like a new thing that we've seen these strains in American politics before. If you remember Carl Rove, when he worked for George <laughs> W. Bush yeah. said perception is reality. Yeah. And yeah. Um, glad that piece of shit is dead. Um, no, no kidding. But the key here, I think, is that like once you are in a space where you admit that it's impossible to tell the difference between like fact and fiction, fantasy yeah. and reality, it's also sort of an annihilation of self. Yeah. Because you can't trust your own perceptions either, which is like the old mm. saying, well, who are you going to trust, me or your lying eyes, right? <laughs> um, and you see that that with the with the sort of constant appeal to authority looking for Trump to design an alternate reality and then disavowing what you believed yesterday because Trump told you to, or um, Ron DeSantis said, and that is, I mean, it's such a denigration, not only of others who are just like, Hey, that's not true, but also of yourself, of your own ability to discern without this appeal to authority, without Q telling you what to think without, um, Trump telling you what to think of being able to actually say like, no, that's bullshit. Um, no matter who you are, I know better. Ugh, I can't stop thinking about that thought about like one of the things that makes me feel very secure in like who I am and my reality is like my critical thinking skills. Right. And like at the end of the day, I can be wrong, but I know that I will eventually come to the realization that factually this idea that I hold based on wrong facts is incorrect and therefore I have to change it. Right. And mm-hmm. like through that, I am rock solid anchored in reality. I feel pretty <laughs> good about it, but I cannot imagine how that must feel purely emotionally that, you know, you're always waiting for direction from whoever your Godhead figure is today. And that might be different tomorrow. And you might have to wake up tomorrow and say that your Godhead figure yesterday, which is literally what they call Trump, by the way, Geotis, which is God Emperor of the United States, uh, that your God Emperor 
maybe was wrong. Like there was this whole when when Trump was touting the benefits of the uh, vaccine, he was public enemy number one to these people. And that's I just can't imagine living on constantly shifting, uh, you know, reason ground, I guess. And that is like the key to being a full person, though, is like you describe this phenomenon of going into your own mind and examining your thoughts and beliefs, comparing them. And you can do that in solitude. Actually, solitude is often quite useful Yeah. for that. And then you can sort of come out with what you've uh, what you've thought through and then interact, the, like push those ideas up against other people's whose minds you value. Yeah. And and continue that sort of refinement of understanding while both valuing your own, um, the value of your own thoughts and also the value of the thoughts of others. Yeah. Like there's a good, healthy balance there. Um, and just, it scares me when I see people who have, and this, this gets to, um, also touches a little bit on Timothy Snyder's work. He's a, um, uh, Yale professor, history professor who focuses on uh, fascism. One of the the type of politics he talks about in Russia is the politics of eternity, in which nothing can, the future is dead. Nothing can ever get better. That's mm-hmm. what Vladimir Putin. That's what yep. uh, has had to convince uh, the population. Yeah. Uh, but instead, it's just an endless repetition of historical grievances. Yeah. And so. I, I see how these things work together, that when fact and fiction have no distinction, when you no longer trust your own self, and you certainly don't trust anybody else, because they're all part of the deep state, they're all, you know, going to rat on you um, to the secret police or, or, you know, to whomever, then you end up with a hopelessness and... That can lead. That can manifest in a number of ways. Whether or not it's a self-directed sort of violence, a depth of despair, a death of despair, or a both self-directed and outward-directed one, like suicide by cop or a mass shooting right. that then ends in a suicide, um, or or like I, you know this the the nebulous definition we're seeing of accelerationism as playing out on boards like eight chan, you know, where it's like just chaos. It's like it's like the fucking Joker, like just chaos to accelerate the dissolution of society and the, and the order as we know it. Because it's, I mean, it's, it's, let's say it's a verdict against the world in which they're forced to live. And this is where I really do indict, you know, um, the financial industry, Silicon Valley, um, the supposedly masters of the universe, right? Mm. That would be nice if true. Yeah, but there's this sort of like applause, like, yeah, you just do what you need to do to survive in a capitalist hellscape. And I'm just like, but if the way you survive is by being a demon, (laughs) right, in hell, like, that is not like a neutral position. Right. That is actively immiserating others, even if it's indirect, even if you're not the one firing, um, you know, the single mother from her job. You're still the one who start who who was part of the um, hostile takeover right. by venture capital that then uh, by by private equity that led to you know the single mother losing her job and and, and this is and then also like the atom is like anti union sentiment you see that at Amazon or at Starbucks or at other places that 
there is nothing more <laughs> um like more uh against nihilism and uh hopelessness than unions yep because it's literally groups of people working together toward a positive goal and and groups of people working together towards a positive goal as members of the working class who are realistic about you know what how how much they will benefit by stepping on the next working class person's neck to become you know to get into middle management which is it doesn't and it makes everybody's shit worse so we might as well unionize as working people who are not going to be billionaires or millionaires because it's not about maximizing what you can get it's about maximizing like the best for we for us i mean and we all know that like one of the great crossovers between you know capitalism protecting itself and white supremacy protecting itself is unions are very diverse and they're often made up of you know working class people who tend to be more people of color and it's just like this is why we this is this is why way back since reagan they've been on this kick about uh being anti-union is you know it it unites a lot of shit that republicans really hate because you're yeah and you're in you're in among equals yeah you're equals and back to your you know back to our central premise here like you are united by a purpose by a positive purpose you know yeah and you have to trust. You have to trust each other. Mm. Um, and you create mechanisms for that level of trust. Right. Um, and then it's a positive feedback loop because once you see that trusting others and working with them gets you a better life, then you have even more grounds to continue trusting and believing, so on and so forth. And yeah. it creates sort of a positive feedback loop of not of negative solidarity, but a positive solidarity about building a better world together. And I sort of, I worry about this when it comes to the way quote unquote coastal elites or Ivy league elites of which I guess I'm technically both um, (laughs) think about their life and their careers. They're thinking about like, what's next on my career ladder. Um, What's next in like, what's the next award I can get. What's the next thing I can do. Yeah. As opposed to saying, like, the way I think about things, um, like, what is the what is the next thing I can build for all of us? What, who can I, whom can I serve uh, with my work? Um, not in a way that's self-aggrandizing because thinking I'm the only one who can do it, but simply because I don't see it being done. And if not me, then who? If only, right? Like, if only, I think, back to our last conversation about toxic nonprofit culture, I think one of the great things that that uh, can sort of, um, uh, what's the word, the the sleight of hand of that is that you can pursue a lot of pretty selfish ends uh, with, you know, veiled means that look like they're community minded, I guess. Yeah, and, and but you have to also think about like what kind of institution am I building? Am I building something right. more egalitarian, like a union, right, in which it is focused on we, we make decisions, we work together, um, it's for the benefit of all of us, or is it about me? What's the next position I can get from this? What? How is this going to help my career? What do right. I want, right? And like this is also my criticism of some organizations like. Um, 
some quote unquote charity projects like <laughs> uh, like the Zuckerchan initiative, um, yeah. where they're saying, "Well, we know how to solve your problems," right. without even asking, "What is your problem? Like, what problems do you have?" Well, we're going to send AI to fix your schools when they're like, "Well, yeah, I mean, I guess you know our test scores are a problem, but." more importantly, like the entire like social infrastructure in our community is decaying <laughs> and school result and, and the schools are, are a symptom of that, not the cause, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say like, that is the most limousine liberal ass shit I have ever heard in my entire life of like, I'll send my million dollar, you know, profit developed, profit driven development AI to fix your poor school where what you really need is like, your whole city needs higher wages and uh, you, you know, your state government needs to eliminate its fucking voucher program. So you can actually get the tax dollars your school deserves. Yeah. And you, need, and you also need, you know, mass transit, you need yeah. affordable childcare. Yeah. Um, you need adequate promotion for women and people of color. You need all yeah. sorts of things, right? You yeah. Need- Fix work on that. Zuck. Yeah, like this is why I I don't like I hold up, you know, Michelle Obama's work to eliminate food deserts yeah. as like the antithesis of this. Yeah. That like really understanding and being deeply embedded in the communities and doing something that doesn't look sexy like woo AI woo. <laughs> but instead literally like we need fresh food for kids. Like the so I I sell at a bunch of um farmers markets and a thing that is great an awesome program is uh Snaplucks doubling and tripling. So you can go to these these farmers markets and you pay ten dollars and you get thirty dollars in some places in tokens. Uh, and it benefits us, the vendors, and it's awesome because like people who normally would have to go maybe to the dollar store and be lucky to get like you know a shitty cabbage and a couple shitty heads of lettuce can get awesome local produce. And like I love talking to these people. It's to me, it's awesome that like some people don't have cars and they take the public transit out to the farmer's market to, you know, get their triple bucks and we get to know them. And it's just like this awesome becomes this awesome community event. And, you know, and it it, builds. And I think the word community is really great. It builds community. It connects people who might not otherwise connect to each other. Yeah. And it's not a sexy program. That's not a cool, like, that's not a cool thing that you put on your resume. Like I put a, I put together the local snap bucks tripling program, which like is amazing and moves so much stuff for people like me and small farmers. And yet, you know, it's just going to be like a line item on a budget, you know? But it's these sort of things that make a thicker society so that we learn. I mean, I, you know me, I, I think about trust and about the value of trust constantly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the example I always use to people is that, like, Greece is always used as the example of, uh, you know, tax evasion and shit <laughs> yeah. like that, of a yeah. failing tax system. And the United States is actually for everyday people, not the rich, but for everyday people, virtually everyone pays what they owe. Yep. With basically no oversight. <laughs> like they, yeah. they usually don't audit anyone. Um, and what I tell people is that the difference between us isn't the monitoring. Right. Greece actually spends far more monitoring and enforcing its tax laws. Right. The difference is trust. Yep. The difference is that in the United States, we all trust and believe that our neighbors are paying what they owe. Yep. And in Greece, they don't. Yep. 
And honestly, uh, you know, Grace seems to have a little bit more realistic concept of uh, trusting not maybe not their neighbors, but in, in America, it would be better if we had that same level of scrutiny towards our, uh, you know, billionaires and billionaire class. Well, again, I agree with that. And I, I'm being, that's why I'm being very careful that like, it's everyday people who pay their taxes. Yep. The only people who care enough and, you know, and are dicks enough to try to not pay are the, are the rich. Right. Everyone else is just like, whatever, you know, I pay what I owe. It's fine. And it's a, I view it as a civic and patriotic duty to, to yeah. do that. Um, and so, and it's these things that prevent us from sort of giving up, right. from believing that the only thing, that a future is impossible, but so the only thing left is vengeance upon my enemies. <laughs> I mean, but like we're joking and I'm laughing, but the truth is like, this is kind of the trajectory of the current conservative, like train of thought. And like, it's hard to express to people outside of the United States that we have a party that for mm, 40 years has been intent on making sure that the government doesn't work so that people experience that like lack of, you know, feeling like they're bought in and that their tax dollars go to something that matters. I mean, that's not the first initial intended purpose, but I think it's just like a, a happenstantical feature of, of the military industrial complex. <laughs> well, this is what I tried to tell people. Like, what do you think government is? It's just other citizens. Yeah. It's just other Americans. It's not some like foreign invasive entity right, put right. here by like Martians or whatever. Right. But like <laughs> that it, it's it's you and me and our neighbors and it's all of us. And yep. it's not perfect, but we can change it if we try, if we trust each other and work together. And, and this is why it's so pernicious. Um, why like the Reagan philosophy <laughs> of um, anti of like anti-government uh, sentiment um, is just like an acid eating away at the chassis of the car that is the United States. <laughs> and why I, I mean that kind of stuff, I think it finds fertile bed. I think it finds like a, a fertile ground when people's lived experiences are of hopelessness and helplessness. Yeah. I think that if you tell that to like newly unionized Amazon workers that nothing can ever like can nothing can ever get better, they're they're not gonna believe you because they literally just materially improve their lives. Yep. Um or I, I there's this great um this great tweet by a member of a union who said, you know, that they just got a $14,000 raise and that now they have to pay dues. But I looked up because of the way I am of what the dues rate is for that specific union. And it's 0.87%. Jesus Christ. All right. Calm. Yeah. Calm down. $140. Or is that even right? <laughs> no, it, no. I mean, it $14. It, no, it's like, it's nothing. It's 0.87. So like for that to be greater than the $14,000 that she's making, so the extra fourteen thousand dollars, it would have to. She'd have to have to have a salary of around a million bucks. Great, great. Which she obviously does not. So, and this is this is and this is something where you you tell that person that you know working with other people, politics, organizing is pointless. They're just gonna laugh at you, and then you know <laughs> they're all gonna have a, a good a, a good laugh at your expense when she tells that story at the next union meeting. Yep. 
And but it's, <clears throat> to your yeah. to your point about um, you know material like the immediate improvement of your material conditions, uh, you know, making you more and more uh, insulated from this sort of skepticism about the capabilities of government is like this is why the government does things like redlining. Like this is why the government does mm-hmm. things like putting interstates through black neighborhoods. The point mm-hmm. is like a generational sense of defeatedness, right? Like that you will, not only are we going to deny you the ability to like get ahead generationally, but we will keep on denying future generations just based on how we've determined to trap you in a location that will slowly devalue over the next, you know, 50 years. Yeah. Or why um, we see places like uh, China or um, Russia monitor the internet or Mm -hmm. Iran so that people are afraid to speak their minds openly to each other. Yep. And eventually you don't really have to do that much censoring because people just silence themselves. Correct. And that sort of silence then prevents them from being able to trust each other because it's through that conversation and communication that you can build trust and community and connections. And then slowly like civic life as we know it collapses into yep. this well of anger, hatred, and cynicism, dumbass cynicism. That's why Russia has so many alcohol poisoning deaths, um, both from the state having raised the taxes on vodka to the point that people start making it at home and like, oops, you get a little methanol mixed in there and then you're blind and dead. Uh, But, you know, it's just people who have nothing else. They have nothing to hope for. So there's no reason not to sit around and get blackout drunk 24 hours a day. Yeah, I was reading Masha Gessen's most recent book, The Future is History, and she writes about this this one young woman who eventually just says, like, there's no future here yep. in Russia. And she means that in both a personal sense, I have no future here, but also in, like, a cosmic sense that, like, all the beautiful futures that we were promised um, with the fall of the Soviet Union, um, with the quote-unquote democracy, yep. um, they're never going to arrive. And that Russia yep. never has a future. Because nothing will ever get better. Ooh, ooh, and and, and you're just you just grow up in that, right? Like yeah. that's just like the air around you smells like shit all the time, but you have no idea because that's all you know. But it, it still like seeps into you, right? Yeah. That that, that I understand. I mean, you know, you're in Indiana. I lived in Indiana for many years. You drive to certain parts of the country uh, of the state. And you feel like you're traveling back in time, but not in a good way. I was just there today, in fact, uh, in parts of Indiana that really bummed me out just to be there. And, uh, you know, you get it's it's easy to when you meet those people because I'm in Indianapolis. So everybody loves to come to a Pacers game once in a while. And you meet somebody from one of these outer counties and they have this sort of bottomless fear of. Uh, Indianapolis as like a city, they go to the game and they get their drinks and they go home because there are shootings in here. There are shootings in the city. And I'm like, "Eh, well, I mean, yeah, but like, it's really like not as many as you think. And like exposure on the news kind of makes you think like a lot more of what's happening. And like, it's really kind of concentrated among people who are already committing crimes, like dealing heroin, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, again, you end up with this like self-insulating concept of the other, the longer that you stay in those places and you come up with reasons why you should stay and keep everything the same and a lot of those justifications are often fear-based and then also the feeling of like there are parts of 
many, like there are parts of Missouri where I live, there are parts out here where it feels like time stopped. Yep. And then all that was left was like rot. <laughs> right? Yeah. And it sort of, and it makes me so sad because people get stuck. People care very much about their communities and they don't want to leave. And I, I understand that they want a place that they can call home. Um, and I wish, and a part of me feels like we need to do more to help that there are so many wonderful things that we can do. But then like when someone like me goes, it's like, I know that you have an employment problem, but there's a lot of, you know, empty land here. You get a lot of wind. Why don't we put up some solar and wind farms? Then there's a lot of like pushback and anger in the communities. Um, so it, it's a hard thing to balance. And um, and then also the feeling when I've been out there, I was, I was, I think I mentioned this when I, when I, uh, we were talking about Wabash uh, a few episodes ago, like I was driving to and from, I was driving back from Wabash after doing a boot camp there one weekend and I stopped to get gas. And um, there is a, a woman across the, on the other side of the gas pump from me who was pumping gas. And she just looked me dead in the eye and then spit on my shoe. What the fuck? And like there, and it, it was the middle, it was the afternoon. So it was bright daylight, but you know, I know damn well that I'm the only non-white person for miles. Fuck. And if it, anything happened to me, like, do you think local police really give a shit? <laughs> if some random Asian guy from New York who lives in Bloomington like just disappears, like it, yeah. it doesn't matter. And like I can't live there because right. it's not safe for me yep. to live there. And this yep. is not blaming people for their own for their own misery. It's simply to say that like there are reasons why communities who cannot incorporate new ideas, new people, why they suffer this way. And as much as I want to help, I also can't be there. Right. Uh, so it's, 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 it's a tough situation, but at the same time, I also, they're also then become breeding grounds for the sort of loneliness that we're talking about. So then, you know, 30 years down the line, 50 years down the line from that sort of decline, you know, stockpiling firearms and thinking about, you know, ending, civilization seems reasonable because it looks like civilization is ending for you anyway. I was going to say, if you look out your window and all you see is fewer and fewer people and more and more closed businesses, which by the way, um, the pandemic did reverse those trends. It was the only period in which uh, cities did not grow and in fact shrank and suburbs and rural counties actually grew. <coughs> Excuse me. But <clears throat> for most of these people, if you imagine like, like, can you imagine if everybody in your town, like Marion, Indiana, my my friend Molly's parents uh, ran the Tradewinds Bar, which was where all the um, uh, GM workers would come get wasted before, in the middle, and after their shifts of, you know, making car parts. And uh, when the GM factory closed, you can imagine what the die-off was like for the rest of the town. And everybody who had gathered around, you know, this oasis of economic mobility uh, to gain their own economic mobility. And it's like, mm -hmm. that would to me, if I was from Marion and couldn't really leave and had been there my whole life and didn't have, you know, uh, a secondary education, that would feel like the end of the world to me. 
Yeah. And in some ways it is. It's an end of a world, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that used to be, you know, like Elkhart, Indiana is famous for being uh, where um, red gold tomato uh, ketchup is made. Um, uh, There's just like a bunch of little parts manufacturers over there. Um, And Elkhart is one of those places that it's doing fine, but it's um, it's been better. Um, But you can imagine that that used to be the, the a lot of the fabric of American manufacturing. And then. I mean, I don't know how to tell these people, but like, it's their own, it, it be their own Republicans that want to make sure that their jobs get outsourced. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that's, but that's part of the problem is that like, they get, then they get lied to. Right. Right. And, um, Hannah Arendt is actually the one who coined the term big lie. Mm. She said that the way that you then win is just to invent a big lie and stick to it. And it doesn't just have to be one. It can be many. It can be from it's the immigrants who are stealing your jobs when you know that's not the case. Yeah. Um, It can be, you know, this election was stolen when you know that's not the case. It it can be, you know, the idea that like New York City is so dangerous and it's really rural America that's safe when it's just the opposite. Rural America is much, much more dangerous um, (laughs) than New York City and most major metropolitan areas. With the exception of places like, you know, where I used to live in St. Louis, that is yeah. legitimately an extremely dangerous city. Although I have to say, I was, I've almost never felt in danger, even though I lived in an extremely high crime area. The only time I ever felt in danger when I, when was when there were like literally gunshots that were feet away from me. Yeah. I was going to say like, I don't feel in danger, but I li- I do live, you know, a block away from uh, the sex work and, uh, uh, you know, mid-level shipment breaking up of drugs hotel. And sometimes I hear gunshots that are really close to me. And that's the only way that I feel, I don't feel targeted, but it would certainly be shitty if like a shell fell from a thousand feet up and through my garage and nailed me, you know? Exactly. And when I talk about that Wabash thing is I felt much more directly endangered. (laughs) Yes. Much, much, much more directly endangered. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like the stop that we made, we used to, in college, I don't know why we did this, but we used to drive all night from Indianapolis to Florida because we usually got done with finals like four o'clock and then we just go. And there were places in fucking Alabama where my Indian roommate Nishat could not get out of the car. She was like, no, I'm going to, not only am I not going to get out of the car, I'm going to lay down in the back and cover myself up, like just in case. And I was like, you know, I'm a stupid white person. I had never considered that in a million years. And I was like, holy fucking shit. We got to get out of here. Like, we got to go. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, I, talking to people, they're like, in, in what I'm doing now, they're like, there's a clerkship for everybody. And I'm just like, yeah, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that every clerkship is for everyone. Like, there are legitimately <laughs> yeah. good reasons why I am not applying to clerkship some places. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like... But the thing is that, and, and we were talking also, uh, we talk a lot about loneliness when you're, you know, uh, you know, getting onto our conversation about Amber Heard or about people reporting um, domestic violence, sexual assault, these sorts of okay. things, how lonely and isolating um, that can be. I think it's so important movements like Me Too and then, you know, organizations that then help survivors because it creates the sort of community and solidarity um, that allows people to, um, even if it's not to get justice, it 
helps them not have to suffer alone. Yep. Yep. And as does, I don't know if you saw the show, Big Little, uh, Big Little Lies. Did you see that? I know of it. I didn't actually watch it. It has probably the single most accurate portrayal of what domestic violence actually looks like in like, especially like in an upper middle class household where like people who are very, very good at masking their extremely violent rage towards their spouse, you know, are often very charming in person. They are, you know, and they can be a horrible, horrible monster at home. But that is a situation uh, in which it is, hard to be heard as a victim because you are insulated in some way by your privilege. But at the same time, you know, the, the abuser isolates you. And that's like the whole point is like loneliness is not loneliness. It's powerlessness, right? Like that's the, the idea is I am powerless to change my situation. Yeah. And so, you know, touching on Amber Heard, she's doing an interview, um, and I kind of feel for her. And she says that she doesn't blame the jury right. for what happened. But she, she did ask, I think, a good question. Is that like, does anybody think that the portrayal of her on social media is a fair and accurate representation of her as a yeah. person? Um, and I, of course, I, I think that it's obvious <laughs> um, yeah. uh, that th- this is not the case, nor was it ever meant to be, right? right. Um, nor was it ever meant to be. And so you can see how isolating having that kind of anger, but not really having a great <laughs> outlet for it, because like letting it out would just make everything worse, mm. um, must be. And I also think of that in a larger sense that like, you know, if you're in one of these dying rural areas of the, of the country, like you, and why you might m- want a convenient QAnon explanation mm. is that like saying, well, you know, it's globalization and, and, you know, right. deregulation on wall street and, you know, like, and then you're just like, but that's not a psychologically satisfying answer because there's no like person for you to direct your, direct your rage at. And, and like, what are you going to do? You're going to track down Jamie diamond. You think you're going to ever get within a hundred fucking feet of Jamie diamond? No, fuck no. But if you, you did, can... there how many other people just gonna you know some other douchebag banker is gonna step in? That's what I mean. Like like in any situation where you think you're gonna like you know get a get a shot off at you know one of these events, like you're not gonna get in, you're not gonna know where to go because these things happen in secret. Yada yada yada. It's just like so far beyond your sphere of influence. But you can sure as fuck commit some stochastic terrorism at your local community of color. You know? Yeah. I, th- I think that's a really, really good point. So that sort of malfeasance, that sort of like systemic abuses then become acted out again in the most vulnerable communities. And, <laughs> you know, yep. it's not, it does, you don't see it impacting the, uh, you don't see it impacting the Steve Mnuchins of the world. Yeah. I was going to say, and like, I know we've already talked about the great replacement culture, but, or the great replacement conspiracy theory, but like th- that hinges on like, it's not only a conspiracy, but like it is a higher level, of course, the Jews, but like it is, of course, like this middle management layer who is manipulating the lower class, you know, uh, non-white people to come in and replace uh, the white Americans. Right. So it's like it's like two layers of conspiracy. And even 
even it's like this recognition that like while their fellow man can be manipulated as well, they're truly the victim in the middle of all this, you know, manipulation, I guess. The sad thing is that in some ways these people are victims. Right? Yeah. But not that in the they way are... that they can conceptualize. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and what they don't recognize is that like, if they join in solidarity yep. with people like you and me, <laughs> We get or like you know AOC, yeah. Things could get better. Like they direct, uh, like that's the clever trick of like conservative elites. What they've pulled is they've managed to turn like poor rural people, white white Americans, against the very people who want to help them. Yep. Um, um, yeah. My my former partner uh, was from Jackson, Michigan, um, and was himself you know, kind of one of the truly rare instances of somebody who is grows up desperately poor, becoming middle class. Um, but, you know, he would say, and I used to think he was joking, and now I know he's exactly 100% correct, which is Walmarts and prisons. You know, like you can, you can see the, the cycle, the vicious cycle of struggle in the Walmart prison, uh, um, you know, landscape of rural America where like Walmart doesn't pay anybody enough. I think they probably do. They pay more now, but like, you know, the Walmart comes to town, your government gives them a tax break because they're going to have jobs. The jobs don't pay enough. Everybody now shops at the Walmart and the prices are super, super low. So they stop shopping at any place that might've been, you know, like locally owned Mm -hmm. and this, and then, you know, on this, on, on the other side, it's like, the prison comes to town, the government gives them a tax break. Everybody's excited because the prison's going to have a bunch of jobs. The jobs don't pay enough. They shop at the Walmart. They reset the market conditions so that everything has to be cheaper. And, you know, you know what I mean? It's uh, cheaper in the short run, but not in the long run. Right, right. You know, you, you get, end up with the poor man's bootstrap. Uh, all, um, what am I trying to say? Allegory poor man's again. Boots. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. poor man's boots allegory, right? Like, and this cycle that seems advantageous for small towns ends up being, you know, 10 times uh, more destructive than if, you know, a small town had been allowed to just like be kind of a small town in the nineties, like in the pre Walmart era. Yeah. I I 100% agree. And then, then you have to like generate villains. (laughs) Like you have to caricature someone like AOC. Right. And I I use AOC as an example because she legitimately has put forward excellent policy prescriptions (laughs) to alleviate rural poverty. And it just like drives me crazy when she is caricatured as some sort of like wild eyed Marxist or something (sighs) like that. Oh my God. And like, and her proposals are, you know, your local government shouldn't be able to get a tax break unless they can guarantee, you know, a $16 an hour wage, right? Like non-sexy helpful effective policy that yeah. you know turns around or, like, or like you know the guy who owns the local prison who's making huge amounts of money off yeah. of it should should pay his fair share of taxes mm-hmm. i mean that to right. me that, i mean that definition of communism there yeah right exactly <laughs> and, i guess the last bit i i i want to touch on on Arendt's work is that like she is also not saying like these things are inevitable, yeah. right? That like we're inevitably going to fall into totalitarianism because there are these um, 
structural similarities that the present moment has some uh, parallels to the past. But I think that one big thing that she really nailed in at the end of her life, um, that the last paper um, she published uh, was around 1975. It was based on a talk she had given. And this is right in the heart of Vietnam, right? And she says, and this is a quote, um, the United, this is what America has to face. It's gone farther and farther, further, further and further away from itself into a culture in which politics is marketing, in which politics is PR. <laughs> and this reminds me, this brings up that like Chuck Todd the other day, uh, who, the anchor of Meet the Press, brought up in, in, in when he was having a conversation with someone that Joe Biden doesn't have enough fans. This is in response to Biden's falling poll numbers. Yes, you're right, Chuck Todd. Um, uh, Joe Biden has never once in his life uh, been the central character in a reality TV game show. You are 100% correct about that. And it's what I think, I think that like Arendt's like identification here of the, of the, um, sort of PRification, the marketing uh, death of American politics is that all of us need to think, rethink the way that we engage with politics. Yeah. Do we view it as like sport? Do we view it as entertainment? That very oh. few, very few of us actually uh, engage with it on a purely substantive level about thinking about policy. And yeah. I am exempting, okay, I'm going to be arrogant. I exempt myself from this because <laughs> Lord knows how much time I spend thinking about uh, uh, policy. Um, but I also recognize that I'm weird uh, in that, in that sense. And what makes me sad is when someone like Chuck Todd with such a big, platform like buys into that framing oh. I and like know. i remember being told well you know when you know calling trump a uh, cult of personality yeah. they're just like well how about you and obama and i'm like i supported obama but i want to note now that like it's not like i'm clamoring now for him to be made god king like <laughs> and also you remember all the criticisms I had and still have of Obama yeah. policy. Like it was never about being a fan of Obama. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, if, if we're talking about like purely election strategy, like in the context of the sort of current mood or mode of um, GOP politics, it's like, yeah, I guess it's kind of um, it's kind of a bug of our system that we don't re- regard any of our leaders as gods. I guess, like in the weird cult like culture of the GOP around Trump, like yeah, I guess in a fucked up world, it is kind of a problem that we refuse to think of our politicians as anyone but like a person hired to do a job. Ex- yeah, that's exactly it. Hard to compete with a god emperor, frankly. <laughs> it's maybe not as like in the minute as emotionally satisfying. Yeah, I guess on some base level, but like there's a reason why so many democracies separate the sort of face of the party and the functional leader <laughs> yeah. of, of the party. Um, and I see that also with the work that uh, that I do and other organizations do. That often who you see on TV representing an organization 
uh, is not the person actually doing the things um, behind the scenes. And we should not expect them both skill sets to come in the same person. Um, And I have to say that like, we also have to take like the material conditions of our nation seriously, that we have to take the, you know, not just dismiss it as partisanship when we talk about um, the struggles in rural America and on the other side, the, the, the problems in, in cities that we can't view it as identity politics when um, one particular group with this particular intersectional need speaks up about uh, what what they need. Um, but it also has to go both ways that like you can't demonize and try to starve Chicago of resources um, while also, you know, begging that everyone try to help you. And it needs to be, as we said before, like it needs to be real positive solidarity. It needs to be real relationships that are reciprocal. I mean, yes. Like, sorry, there's a, um, now there's a spider and it's, uh, looks (laughs) like it's preparing to jump. And I, if that happens, I'm going to freak out. So, um, um, no, it looks like maybe it's just like, preparing to make a web well if you hear screaming now you know what happened anyway yeah, we record without without a net here <laughs> yeah no net um uh it is as it has been for the last 20 years and i wish that i hadn't become aware of this as young as i did to see a lot of rural americans um just constantly shitting in their own hat and then proudly placing that hat right on top of their heads and the hat is now a maga hat um I, I, uh, I don't know, man. I'm really nervous about what happens. You know, here I am with my critical thinking and my liberal arts education, just excited about the future. What does the future hold? And in that excitement, I forget all the time that, in fact, the future is really terrifying for a lot of people without my resources. And what people do in fear is they go find daddy. And in this situation, daddy is fascism. And... Uh, how do we how do we bring them back, right? Like, how do we bring them back? I I, I think it's the least possible that it's ever been. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I know that's true. I'm I I try to remain hopeful because because I I, I think it's just intrinsically my nature to be an optimistic <laughs> yeah. pessimist. Yeah, and everything <laughs> sucks, but it can only get better. Um, yeah. not it can only get better, but it can still get better. Sure. Um, and it's also the way I cope sort of like with my depression is that I, <laughs> I, 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 I do my work and I throw myself into the things I care about because that's the only way to sort of, you know, um, try to remain hopeful and, and derive meaning from life. Yeah. But I, I actually do think just like through the work that I do, the conversations I have talking to you, uh, having such great family and friends, it's just like, I am embedded in a network of really wonderful people who really do care uh, about the future, not only of the country, not only about me, but about the world that it does, it does give me hope. And um, I think it's important for us to try to, even though it might be irrational uh, (laughs) or objectively incorrect to have so much hope. I think that it is psychologically necessary if we're actually going to get anywhere. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you also, 
the I, I think the uh, the essential piece, the essential imperative that's been missing is like actually you have to be like delusionally hopeful to accomplish like the small unsexy things. Like that is in fact the amount of energy and momentum it takes to get things like you know the stop sign at the end of your street so that people stop killing kids on bikes. You know what I mean? Like you have to have the delusional hope and belief that the government can change everything, and through that you'll have a bunch of little changes that will impact your life more than you could possibly imagine. I think that's America's greatest strength and its greatest weakness is it's this historical delusional hopefulness um, that like, that's why Americans sort of like throw themselves into, but for both good and ill, right. Trying to do gigantic momentous things, both domestically and abroad. Uh, My fear is, is that we're losing that to some extent. Yeah. Um. And I think, you know, people always quote, you know, declining entrepreneurship numbers and stuff like that. But this is why I'm in favor of things like UBI, because I think that there are a lot of people who want in their heart of hearts to start their own businesses, to do their own things. Yep. But it's like the fear of destitution and like, you know, not having medical care that holds them back. (laughs) Um, But if you remove that fear, I really think you would see so many people f- doing work they find a meaningful like really interesting fascinating work yeah um that they find meaningful um and that's why when you know i i don't think of it as utopian i think of it as like a practical solution to problems of meaninglessness that people that arise under late capitalism this is a way to not not destroy capitalism like you see very capitalist economies in places like sweden um mm but they're paired with these strong social safety nets and what you get are incredible levels of dynamism and entrepreneurship. But at the same, that is aided by the fact that you don't have to worry about, you know, dying alone (laughs) and and, uh, 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 cold and alone on the street. I was going to say, you know, your, your venture doesn't work. I was going to say the, the backstop of your venture not working isn't sleeping in your car. If you have the luxury of having a car, uh, it's just like, oh, well, shit, it didn't work out, which trust me, like it not working out is, you know, humiliation enough, uh, is, is humbling enough, I should say. Um, can I, I just decided to do this like yesterday and I placed my order today, but what I'm doing is I'm going to spend 25 bucks um, and that can include shipping. Uh, I'm spending 25 bucks at like an independent business that I see on Instagram that has like less than 5,000 followers every month. And it's not a ton of money, but I think that I I am myself a beneficiary of this impact, and and I do more and more believe in the sort of small business economic justice that is possible. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I am myself have not been holding holding that that standard, and I'm going to do that. And I challenge everybody to do that. And I just bought some lip gloss, and that sounds fun. So, and I just saw this woman's packaging and I messaged her and said, I love your packaging. It's so cute. And I was like, why are you DMing? Just buy some, you dummy. And well, so let's, uh, let's give them. them a shout out. Why don't we do this every, oh, every week awesome. from now on? Let's yes. give them a shout out. Hold on. Let me look it up. Uh, All right. I like this because there's so many wonderful things that people are doing out there and it's hard and expensive to break through all the noise. Oh, so, here it is. Yeah. It's, it's Sugar Scoop Beauty. And the packaging is so cute and the branding is so cute and they do free standard shipping over $65. I didn't spend that much, but I got uh, one of the, their um, lip balms are called uh, 
pout pudding and it's so cute. They do luxury press on nail sets that are so cute and I just love it. So buy some stuff from them. It's great. So can you repeat that name again? Yes. Sugar scoop, sugar scoop beauty, sugar scoop beauty.com. And it is um, black owned and woman owned. And it's just, all the stuff is amazing. When I start wearing nails again, I'm going to get some nails from her too. And if there are any small businesses or small business owners out there listening and you want us to highlight uh, highlight your product, your business, you know, send us a sample, get in touch with us. Um, yeah. You can tweet at us. You can tweet at us at perpstew. You can hit up uh, metalhoney.com send, uh, or and metalhoney on uh, all of the uh, social media and just get in touch because we'd love to try your product and then give a testimonial. There's no charge um, for this sort of thing. We just want to do it because we support small businesses and we want to see you all, you know, grow and succeed. I am more and more a believer in, in small business economic justice. And this is one way that we can all still participate in, uh, um, you know, self-indulgent, uh, uh, retail therapy and still help somebody build the, the future that they want for themselves. I think that's wonderful. And speaking of futures I want for myself, I want Burger Jam. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. Yeah, I meant to put that online and then I just like forgot. But uh, Burger Jam is uh, delicious. It's um, out uh, now. You can get it at the farmer's market in Indianapolis here. I will put it online. To get it wholesale, they have to go through this whole like testing process. But it it will pass. It's just like going to be like literally a grand to get all those products tested. So uh, we're going to wait till we get them all in the jar and labeled up, um, but you can still buy them in person. Just not quite yet online, but metalhoney.com and uh, use the promo code perps and you will get, I believe it's free shipping. Yeah. And I have to say that like burger jam has, I mean, Oh my God, it looks so good, but it's also the exact right time of the year to be thinking about yeah. innovative, interesting toppings. And I am someone who wishes he liked ketchup. <laughs> but I don't really, because it doesn't really add any texture, right? And nope. you can just like, right? So I, what I love about the burger jam, it'll give me this sort of tomatoey umami-ishness, yeah. yep. but it has all of this extra texture and fun stuff in there. Oh my gosh. The funniest thing too is, uh, and I, you, you saw this already, but I burned the first batch and I yeah. made a non-burned batch and I tasted them side by side and the burned batch was so much more delicious uh, than the non-burned batch. So um it's burned now, so it's in the SOP that it gets a little bit burnt. So if you get a nice little piece of onion char in there, just know that that is, in fact, what makes it so delicious. So so it's like, you know, it's like the uh, uh, first uh, vaccines, right? Or discovering yep. antibiotics. You discovered penicillin. I discovered this is my version of penicillin. And boy, I hope it helps all of your gonorrhea. <laughs> so again, metalhoney.com. Um and uh, as always, please like, subscribe, share the show. Um, it really helps us with the algorithms, gets the word out there. Two new listeners. We've had 17% growth over the last oh. month. So thanks to all of you out there <laughs> uh, sharing, subscribing, and downloading. It's been really, really great. We were a little worried when we relaunched under a new name that we would have some trouble uh, getting our old audience back. But it appears that we have managed to get even more people. And awesome. a shout out, shout out to our two listeners in India. I have no idea who you are, <laughs> but thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. Awesome. Uh, so uh, that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, this has been the Perpetual Stew. I'm Matthew Goodman. I'm Sarah Merle. And until next time, stay curious.
Bye.